Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Dr. John Lennox, who is one of the founders of the International Swordsmanship and Martial Arts Convention in Lansing, which moved to Vegas to become CombatCon. He is an instructor with the Historical Martial Studies Society and with the School of Two Swords, and he has a PhD in the relationship between stage combat and personal combat from the late 16th century onwards. So, without further ado, John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to see you, Guy. It's great to see you again. Um, so, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I am in Michigan still. Um, when when last you came over to uh, the workshop, the ISMEC workshop, still in the same place. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, we first met at ISMAC, so the International Swordsmanship and Martial Arts Convention, in 2001, which is over 20 years ago, sir. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, how how was it that in 2001 you were organizing a an international event uh, which had an awful lot of historical martial arts in it? How did that occur? Well, actually, that occurred because in 99, I went to the uh, very first uh, Western martial arts workshop that uh, Chicago Swordplay Guild in, in Chicago mm-hmm. had put on. And it was there that I met Jared Kirby. And right. I had such a great time there and uh, was talking with him. He was having such a great time. And I said to him, I said, well, I teach at a college. I can get whatever rooms I want for free to do workshops. It won't cost us anything other than bring the people in, you know, and we agreed that we would, uh, we would, the way we want to do it is cover flights and, and, uh, and hotels and anything else we could muster if we could. And, um, uh, so he was moving at that time from somewhere, wherever he lived, I think I want to say Minnesota to New York to start studying with the Martinez's. Right. And, uh, so on the way across, he stopped at my house and we sat and, and discussed it and uh, sorted it all out. And I showed him the, the college and all the rooms and stuff. And at that point, that's where it was. And we said and we ran it at that college for quite some time yeah. until they started becoming a bit too constraining. And we moved it to Detroit for about two years. I remember the Detroit ones as yep. well. Yeah. Yep. And then after that, uh, the, the numbers were not going any high, any higher. And so we ended up closing it. In 2010 or 11, I believe, and uh, that's when so early, decided earlier than that, I think. I think it was more like 2008, 2009. Anyway, no, I, I, I think, well, yeah. I, well, it might have been nine, but uh, shortly after that is when he came up with uh, the idea of Combat Con, and we, he and I chatted about it, and um, I didn't have any kind of financial backing at the time to jump into it on that level. Uh, so he and Tim did took on that end of it and I just sort of, uh, helped out as much as I could, you know, from a logistics standpoint and giving my advice and whatnot. And, uh, so, so was, was 2001 the first ISMAC? Was that the second? No, that was the second, 2000. That was the second, that's what I thought. Because I started my school in 2001 and I thought, okay, one thing I need to do is kind of get onto the international map, you know, get, get, get to meet people who yep. are good at historical swordsmanship so I can learn from them and bring them over to Finland and that sort of thing. And so 
I contacted Jared saying, I have started my school. I have decided to do this for a living and you run this, this event and can I please come and teach a class? And Jared's response was absolutely classic. He said, well, our budget for the event is entirely taken up. We can't pay you anything, not even expenses. But if you can get here, we will give you a teaching slot. Okay. Um, and if the event makes any money, we will see you right. So I you know, thought, well, I need to do this. So I, I bought the flights and I first I went to New York and I went to New York for a few days and I flew over to Detroit and off to Lansing and you know, had a fantastic weekend. And at the end of the weekend, Jared came up to me and said, Guy, I'm very pleased to tell you that the event did actually make some money, right? Here's $50. <laughs> <laughs> that, the, the entire operating profit of the event was $50 and he gave it all to me to help with my flights. <laughs> <laughs> Those early years were still, I think we might've had 30 students our first year. I think somewhere in that right. neighborhood. But I mean, the second year, it was a, it was a pretty well attended event. I mean, it was, yep. it had at least 20 instructors and yeah. at least a hundred students. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. good. It, and it went very well. And I think we were down to about 75 students by the time we finally said, okay, we need to call it and, and right. it needs to end. Yeah. That's also, that's the same weekend that I met uh, Sean Hayes for the first time. All right. Yeah. So it, it, it sparked off all sorts of useful connections. Absolutely. Um, all right. Now, trick question. This is to test your, your, your general knowledge history of the ISMAC event. What kind of party has a 50% mortality rate? <laughs> That'd be a boarding party, which is <laughs> a fantastic class. Tell us um, all about it. It's, it's about uh, learning how to fight like pirates and, and uh, naval uh, officers and, and uh, seamen did on ships in the Golden Age of Sail. And what happens when they board each other and, and uh, attack. So... Uh, myself and Gareth Thomas and Steve Huff and later on uh, Stevie Fick really put our, our, our heart and soul into this kind of research and study and so on and so forth and, and, and uh, working with each other to uh, actively work at it, physically do the, the actions and moves, see what would work, what wouldn't work. Um, getting onto tall ships as often as we can to see literally about how much space do I have to do this kind of thing? What happens when I go below decks? Uh, so we took that kind of information and, and threw it into these classes. And at the end of it, we have a big boarding action where we split the class in half and one half is one side, one half is the other. And we let them go at it, obviously all kitted up and safe and whatnot, but we just let them go at it. And we kind of found uh uh, the first year, like about half of them, half of them died. So we did the t-shirts of uh, the only party with a 50% mortality rate. And the next year we ended up put crossing that 50 out and putting 90 because damn near everybody died. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever get to do it actually on a ship? I seem to remember there were plans to do it on a ship. We did it on a riverboat. That was That's the best what, we yeah. had uh, in Lansing. We were doing it on riverboats and we were going to do it on a riverboat, we would have got a tall ship if we could have, because they do they do come in there every so often. When we moved to Detroit, we were going to do it, but the national uh, uh, the, I don't know the, the our defense, our national defense, United yeah. States National Security Association, yeah, closed it down because 
we would technically be in international waters with weapons. Oh. Because it was on the, that riverboat's on the Detroit River, which half of it is Canadian, half of it is American. And yeah. Ah, that would have been a bit awkward. You'd yeah. think they'd have a bit of a sense of humor about this. Right, you'd thing. think. And I think the Canadians would too. I mean, what are they going to do? Yeah. They're going to look over and go, oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. The United States of America is declaring war by sending like 40 people waving blunt swords onto a boat. <laughs> I think I think if the US wanted to annex Canada, they wouldn't do it with blunt cutlasses. No, I think we could do better than that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's how that went. And uh, it's wonderful. And we, we ended up doing a bunch of workshops out at Stevie Fixes, like, I think two or three years worth of workshops, mm-hmm. uh, annual workshops on that at Stevie Fix uh, Dimas and uh, had a wonderful time doing that. You know, then the pirate phase kind of the craze kind of went away yeah. and. So how, how, much, how much of that, I mean, what sort of historical sources do we have for pirate combat? There are pirates, a, pirates are not famous for writing books. They are not. They, they are not famous for writing books. What we have is we have occasional descriptions of battles that took place uh, uh, during boarding actions from uh, captains or admirals. Mm-hmm. We have uh, a handful of treatises uh, uh, that were basically the Admiralty showing them, uh, writing, having a treatise written about how to sword fight with a cutlass, most of yeah. which are trash, but um, one... Well, well the, really but, the, but the objective is not to teach people how to be good at fighting with a cutlass. The objective is to give usually press-ganged troops... Right. Um, some idea of what to do with this short blade they've been issued. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We just find that a lot of them were basically um, military saber. Yeah. That was just switched over ship. to cutlass, which does not. It's too long, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and lots of the cuts, man, when you, any, any one of the low cut, low line cuts, you don't do that running at someone on a ship. It just doesn't happen, you know? Yeah. So one guy named William Pepper uh, Green, or not, uh, uh, William Pringle Green, excuse me. William um, Pringle Green, okay. Yes, yeah, Pepper was a, a saber writer uh, in the 1700s. Anyway, William Pringle Green said, I can teach people in three days to defend a ship. And okay. the cuts are this one, this one, and this one, and that's it. Yeah. And here's the defenses. I'll show you defense and flank cuts, but it's probably not going to happen. And so, you know, and that, that, that was the extent of it. It's a much quicker, much cleaner system. And it's a whole lot of get it out of the way and kill it and move on to the next guy. And so his was a actually solid treatise on how to actually do this. See, that's interesting because a lot of people who don't do much in the way of their own historical research and maybe are not that familiar with how swordsmanship really works would sort of assume that the more complex a treatise is, the better it is. Mm. But that exactly. is like just so completely not not how no. it works. No, absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So so you developed your like pirate combat stuff primarily from what Pringle Green was teaching. Was it the Royal Navy or the American Navy? He was in the. It was the Royal Navy. Royal God Navy. no, Americans wouldn't have written that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it, between that and us actively doing it as often as humanly possible and when we were together and working it and working it and realizing what worked and what didn't work. You know, the whole section that I have, and this is a book that is going to come out actually sometime in the near future. We wrote a book on this. Okay. You and, and I've got uh, m- myself and Gareth and Steve Huff. 
Okay. Um, and uh, I, I've got a lot of pictures to deal with to try to get that. But other than that, the book is pretty well, it's all written and edited. Um, and uh, like the section on small sword, well, Pringle Green doesn't discuss that at all. Why would he? Right, exactly. But when we were doing our working at it, we know that for a fact that because there's, there's actual written accounts of officers with their small sword being involved in the uh, boarding actions and attacking and fighting off people. Mm -hmm. So we decided to start working with it to see what worked and what didn't work. And after multiple times of, of me being attacked, <laughs> it, you know, there was about two or three guards that were the only ones that would actually work without me instantly getting them to control my weapon or completely disarmed. This is the only way it could happen. Only way it could be done. And so okay. that's how we do it. So if you're stuck in a boarding action and you only have a small sword, what should you do? Uh, the best, uh, from what I found, the best guard is, um, well, well I, it's, a, it's a guard where you're standing and the sword is pointing down toward the floor and the sword is held sort of between your legs. Okay. So what happens is they come rushing at you. You basically do a reverse lunge, bringing up the point. Oh, a bit like uh, Don McBain's Boar's Thrust. That's exactly it, to one yes. Knee. Yeah, yep. okay. Yep. So that kind of, th and, and and honestly, it's so quick and it's so, it's so uh, uh, hard to catch yeah. for so, a person running at you in time. So, so there you are with your small sword stuck in some pirate's bowels. What do you do when his mates start whacking at you? Oh yeah, now you're screwed. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so it works. It works. Works against one. Works person. once. <laughs> uh, frankly, what we what we decided and we, we learned is is that uh, if by chance, because you try you, you for the cutlass being a, a, a slashing weapon, you try not to to thrust too much with it for that exact reason. What you're just talking about, but a small yeah. sword, you got no choice. So I'm going to run that through. I'm going to now go up to that guy, hold him, and he's now a meat shield for me okay. until I can remove that and then move on to someone else. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, all right. Now, I know you have a lot of, um, sort of theater and stage combat background. In fact, the last time we talked, you were directing a stage um, musical um, hair. Yes. 2019. Okay. So I know you have like a solid theatrical background and your PhD is all about the connection between stage combat and actual combat. Starting from like the early, early 17th century onwards, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So for the benefit of the listener who may, it's, it's vanishingly possible that one or two of the listeners might not have actually read your PhD. Shocking. <laughs> shocking. I know. But every now and then, people come to this podcast somewhat unprepared, right? <laughs> um, what is the relationship between fencing on stage and in real life? Well, the interesting thing in the, that I found was that uh, from Shakespeare's day on, now mind you that there's not a whole lot of, uh, uh, of reference to it from the Greeks all the way up to Shakespeare all the way up to the, to the Renaissance, because it just didn't happen. Um, huh, it, but, they didn't write about it, or, or there were no swords on stage? Well, the Romans are about the only ones. The Greeks always did their violence off stage. That was a part of the... Uh, uh, okay. It was more visceral to describe it, to, as far as they're concerned, in their culture. 
so it was always offstage. Medieval, we didn't really have a whole lot of it. It was mostly biblical stories and so on and so forth. So there wasn't a whole lot of of, of violence in their productions. Um, and uh, the, but the Romans are the only ones, and a lot of their violence was actual. So I, you know, right. So you actually right. have like actual actual like slaves and gladiators and whatnot doing the it, fights exactly, and, and so, actually like killing each other if necessary. Yeah, so, right. Okay. So I no, didn't. That's really the best stage. That. I mean, come on. That is I mean, the best. Ha- that looks good. For for, but, for, st- for stage realism, I mean, you just what you need to have is let's say you're putting on Romeo and Juliet, and like, how many people get killed in that play? Like about five people, six people. Yeah. So you need six new actors every night. Every night, sure. Okay, I'm, I'm sure people would volunteer for that. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the the Romans, if they really wanted to do something to that effect, they would just put a slave in with the mask, with the character mask yeah. on at that point and let him die, right? And then they yeah. go. But, uh, no, see, the, the interesting thing is, and you're, you're very, very well aware of this, is the the, uh, the culture of dueling at this point in time, in, in Shakespeare's time, was so pervasive yeah. that it was not uncommon for... Uh, an actor, many of whom actually were uh, a gentleman, had owned land, mm-hmm. or had a title because they were connected to a nobility or the or uh, the royal family, and they were capable of getting uh, uh, fencing instruction. I mean, frankly, not to, not to mention you don't have to be noble to get fencing instruction in this era. Sure, at least not now. So, so, um, so are you saying that that actually? Some of the actors who trod the boards in Shakespeare's time had like land and titles. Really? Uh, Shakespeare actually did have land himself. Well, okay, he owned land. Okay, so uh, that's so, as with the gentleman. Okay, right. Yeah. So acting in this period is, is associated with vagrancy, right? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of yeah. fact, you were not allowed to list acting as your profession. So, for example, Ben Johnson, the playwright, had to be listed as Ben Johnson bricklayer because that was his father's. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they couldn't allow, They couldn't do that. But what? But they were capable of, of getting fencing tuition, and many sure. of them did. Uh, we know for a fact that uh, well, Ben Johnson killed another uh, actor, Gabriel Spencer, in a duel. That's right. Yeah, and he was uh, branded on the thumb because he, he pleaded. He, he pleaded benefit of clergy. Yep. Yeah. So because he was able to read and write, he didn't get hanged. He just I got know, burned right? on the thumb. <laughs> that seems fair to me. You know, when I eventually get done by Her Majesty's government for some, I don't know, wrongdoing, I'm going to say, look, dudes, I can read, right? I so re- you, you can't lock me up forever. All you can do is make is maybe give me a little tattoo on my hand and we're done. <laughs> I think that's fair. I, I think it is. So the cool thing is, is these, these people, as a matter of fact, uh, one of uh, Shakespeare's actors in his company was a fencing master. Really? He, he played his master prize. I did not yep. know that. Do you remember and his name? And so, um, off the top of my head, no. I, I'd have okay. to look it look up. Look it up, email me, and I'll stick it in the show notes. Okay. Uh, so, he is very well could have trained other actors in the company. Absolutely. Uh, there were certainly um, rules, as you well know, from the English Masters of Defense uh, of, of, of a school that if he couldn't do a school within, you know, X amount of miles of another master, but... I, they, they were kind of loose on the rules of train your fellow f- actors in a show. So, so all they did, from what I can see in there, all they did was they fenced. They just fenced out of measure, kept it safe, did I, it right. 
I had this same discussion with Ben Crystal, um, the Shakespearean actor, when he was on the show a little while ago. And yeah, we, we sort of came to the conclusion that the way they probably staged their fights was they might have a specific couple of moves at the start and a specific finish to look good on stage. And in between, they just fenced out the measure. Exactly. Actually, there's a lot of, uh, of if you know what you're talking about, uh, and this is simple for you, you obviously know uh, exactly what you're talking about with fencing and you've read a lot of Shakespeare. Shakespeare actually damn near choreographed several of his fights just by laying out what he could be done. He, uh, he uh, Mercutio and, and uh, Tybalt, Mercutio says, come to your Posado. He's like, start the fight with the Posado. And so it, you think that's actually a specific? A I specific think he's specifically telling, giving. Well, okay. and then Benvolio describes the whole fight to the prince after it's over. True. And it better have looked like that, or the audience is going to get pissed. Remember, audiences at this time were very particular about their their entertainment. Yeah, and and yeah. had a pretty good chance of actually knowing a bit of fencing themselves. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, and 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 would there? I have I read several accounts of them jumping on stage and showing them when they did it wrong. Really? Oh yeah. Seventeen hundreds. <laughs> sometime in the seventeen hundreds, there was a, a a sailor, a drunken sailor, who jumped on stage because the lead actor in that play was playing a sailor who was fighting off a bunch of guys, and so he jumped on to help his buddy out and beat the piss out of like five actors. <laughs> Yeah, took it so, a bit too seriously. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is not uncommon. So that's the thing is we're in a culture, and for hundreds of years we were in a culture where you learned to fence to defend yourself. Yeah, and you carried a sword about. Many people did. They didn't just have to that that concept of only noblemen carried swords and top. No, they didn't. I've got woodcuts and pictures of all sorts of farmers and so on and so forth with a side on. Right? They, sure. No. But it wasn't until the late nineteenth century when fencing became uh, basically uh, turned into sport fencing. Once yeah. that kind of shift happened, it wasn't until then, and we no longer the duel had pretty much seen its sunset. Yeah. That actors all of a sudden didn't have those skills anymore. Right. And that's when you start seeing these patterns of click, 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 click type sword play start arise because you got actors who are traveling about, star actors especially, who are traveling from place to place. You get a couple of rehearsals before you go up. There's no time to deal with that. You yeah. either are, are a fencer and you know what you're doing and you're good, or you rely on the fact that you and this other guy happen to know the same pattern. Yeah. And you can do that pattern quickly. So okay. that's when that all changed. You know, then we hit so, Hollywood, of course. Yeah. What, what made you want to do a PhD in that particular subject? Well, the PhD is, is in uh, directing and, in, and scholarship in theater. And I knew when I when I walked into the PhD program, that's exactly what I wanted to do because I'd mm -hmm. been immersed in stage combat for so long. I think I went into my program in 2002. So I'd already started down the road of historical fencing. And I had the, the stage combat, you know, for a number of years prior to that as well. So I just kind of decided when I walked in there, that the smart thing to do is to, is to see if there's a relationship here. That's good. Yeah. I'm sorry, I remember one time I was in Lansing and I saw a group of your guys training a fighter. And I, th I think it might have been Romeo and Juliet, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I was fucking terrified. I thought they were going to die. <laughs> and I knew it was a rehearsal. Right. <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck, they're going to kill each other. <laughs> Well, that was our point is, you know, it's one of the reasons yeah. why Jared and I clicked so well is that both of us had the same mindset is I want to see stage fights on stage that look like they should be, you know, yeah. not big, huge misses, not uh, uh, spins. I, I, I really hate yeah. it unless it's a unless it's a lightsaber. I really hate it when someone does a, a strike to the sword and then turns a full 360 to strike to the other flank. And I'm like, wow. Well, how else? I'm OK. You're, you're cutting. You're cutting from the right. Yep. And you want to cut from the left. You can't just move your hand around and cut to the other side. That would never work. <laughs> Clearly, you have to do a full 360 with your body to yes. strike to the other side. I mean, how else Absolutely. are you going to do it, John? Come on, be realistic. <laughs> <laughs> Don't like spins. I mean, it's not like your opponent's going to stab you in the back or anything. That would be ungentlemanly. Right, exactly. Who would do that? <laughs> the Germans would. But that's, you know... <laughs> There are plenty of Germans listening to this show. <laughs> the Germans are, 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 their treatises are some of the meanest stuff. True. I love reading their treatises, but boy, are they just, they're just violent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, okay. I have so it sounds like a bit of a trick question, um, but you're going to need to expound quite considerably on this. Okay. Okay. What is Rumi Maki? Rumimaki is a style of, uh, it's the Inca style of combat. And okay. it is, it's an amalgam, actually. The Incas being a, uh, a, an empire, a, a conquering empire, every time they conquered a village, in, you know, on their borders and so on and so forth and brought them in, they didn't just sort of bring them in and destroy them. They brought them in and they brought their entire culture with them. So any fighting culture that village had, they brought it in and then melded that into their own system as well. So it's actually quite a huge amalgam of a variety of different styles of combat, all based in the South American region. Okay, so how do we know how, I mean, because the Incas didn't write anything down, so... It's still alive today. Really? It's still alive today. Yeah, absolutely. That is what? still, it is still being taught down in Peru. Yeah. Really? And there are some okay. places now, it's, it's started to spread across the world. There's a place in Chicago, actually, that teaches Rumi Maki. Okay. Um, all right. Well, the, the problem with any sort of living tradition is it's bound to have changed over time. Absolutely. Right. And the Incas were largely destroyed about 400 years ago. Right. And they okay. acknowledge the changes that have occurred over, over this time mm -hmm. frame. And the, one of the first major changes that occurred was changes to the system when the conquistadors came in because they had to deal with shit they'd never dealt with before. Okay. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, I, I lived in Peru for about six years in the 80s and absolutely no one anywhere was doing Rumi Maki. That's crazy. Wow. Right, it just didn't exist. I mean, I, I was looking for martial arts there and there was karate and there was kickboxing there was a bit of judo. There was a bit of tai chi. Fencing wasn't really a thing. We weren't, there was no historical fencing yet because you know, it hadn't really been kind of reinvented yet. Right. Um, but I, there was, I never came across anything that was representing itself as, a, as an Incan martial art. There is a book on it. 
Uh, okay. And it was written by one, by, uh, one of the masters uh, who trained in it, I think, in the 70s. Uh, the, his, his discussion in there is, is exactly, it's like, it wasn't until about the 1970s that it started actually becoming a bit more open. Okay. So probably when you're in Peru, it was still kind of kept, kept quiet. So you'd have to know someone to know someone, and it's in somebody's back garden. This guy got into it by the master in that area sending five guys to beat the hell out of him. Okay. And see how he, and then he felt bad about it. And then he went up to him and said, do you want to learn how to fight? That's how he knew. That's how he found it. Because yeah. one thing that is, has been going in Peru since forever is in Semana Santa, there is this absolutely crazy period of a few days where literally blood runs in the streets. People will, will just fight in the streets and it's yep. okay. It's, it's kind of legal. Yep. Um, I mean, there's a classic. I think mean, I think National Geogra- Geographic did a did an article on it. I don't know, a long time, maybe thirty years ago. And I vividly remember this picture of um, like a a nut, like a nut and bolt, like a steel threaded nut with a yep. bit of string through it, um, held quite close against somebody's fist, and it was just dripping blood. And it was like. They're not really trying to kill each other, but nope. they are really going for it. Is that in any way related to Ruby Mackey? I'm not certain about that particular weapon with the nut, but uh, but the fights in this those are a part of a tradition that the, that has come down from the early days of Ruby Mackey all the way through. Yeah, where they have these sort of festivals where they, where the people fight. And okay. um, some of them are, are, are for show, a little more showy, and some of them are flat out solid real fights that's what they're designed to be so what is it like as a martial art it is uh well it's a five tiered art the first art is uh hands okay so that's fists elbows uh clawing things like that and that's a whole lot like um bare knuckle boxing a whole lot like bare knuckle boxing um the second level is kicks and that is kick strikes as well as parrying and blocking kicks uh, with your legs and so on. So, so the first is upper, second is lower, third is grappling. Mm-hmm. And grappling is broken up into three different types also, uh, which is um, of force, with force, and without force. So there's three different types of grappling. And then the fourth style, or fourth tier, is uh, doing all of those three types from leaping or falling because of the 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 andy mountains andy's mountains their terrain there was so varied yeah and and incas basically lived on um terraces right exactly well, the, so they the, had to the train to terrace, yeah. that way okay. and then uh and then the fifth one is sort of the, the that's more of the mystical level it is all of those levels there with uh weaponry mm-hmm. and that's when you get your sort of spirit totem animal that you call upon to aid you in okay. the fight, right? So, okay. So, tell me about those three types of grappling. With three, force. Uh, see, you would you would find this very interesting with your Go background ahead. in fear. Well, you will get. I'm, I'm right here. Tell me. <laughs> um, of force is I'm going to ha- uh, use pressure. And the force of it, say my arms, 
the strength of my arms to control you. Usually there's their their binds and their controls. Okay? okay. Grappling with force now means I'm going to get my whole body involved in it. So that's where we start getting our hip uh, relation in there and and getting that body weight behind what we're doing. Okay. And then the techniques without force are the ones where I use your momentum against you. That's far more uh, Aikido style, if you will. Okay. Yep. Oh, and so those are the three ways they break down grappling. Interesting. All right. Um, now, is it taught in Quechua? I'm not certain. Because I imagine you get taught it in English, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, I've gone through, uh, just studied this book on a on a regular basis and contact oh, okay. people. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a Rumi Maki here in Michigan, a, a school here in Michigan. Okay, so I'm just so kind of doing. What are, what do the words actually mean, Rumi Maki? Uh, stone fist or stone hand. Stone fist. Okay. Yep. So yeah, do it they comes, have it comes like... from a legend uh, of uh, of the sun god's three sons, and he sent him down here to learn things and. The youngest one was going to be killed by his brothers, so the the sun god turned his hands into stone so he could defend himself, and he beat him up. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so basically, do they have any like body hardening stuff like you find in some? I haven't come across any stuff? of that in there at all. Not really. Um, okay. This is this is it's almost as if you're reading a a, a, a Petter treatise or a uh, uh, one of our bare knuckle boxing treatises from the 1900s. You know, or okay. late 1800s. So yeah. what what is the book? The the book is this Rumi Maki Fighting Arts. I I okay. figured you might ask about it, so I thought I'd <laughs> Okay. <laughs> By Juan Ramon Rodriguez. Juan Ramon uh Flores Rodriguez Flores and Alex yep. Bushman Vega. Okay. Yep. I'll look yeah. it up. It's uh it's it's excellent. It's a very, very good book on it. Uh and he, he goes through very meticulously not only the theory behind it all, but the actual drills and so on and so forth. So it's really good stuff. Okay, now we can cut this out later because I have no intention of producing gotchas, right? But the question, okay. my question really, and we can cut it out if, if it goes into an unfortunate area, is how do you know that it's actually Incan and not just made up by these guys? The, I am I'm literally having to uh, follow along on what they say, whether it is or not. Now, the research that I have done uh, myself like looking into it on, on, on the internet and whatnot, um, I feel fairly confident that that, that, that is correct. And okay. if these guys did make this up, holy hell are they brilliant because the background he has, and this a couple of chapters that he has of where this all came from and what's its history and uh, the philosophy behind it is so detailed. God, okay. that, yeah, he'd have to be, this guy would okay. have to be brilliant so to be making that up. So you're, you're taking it on faith that these authors are legit? Yes. Okay. And, and now this, that's something that we often have to do. Like as historical martial artists, you know, um, I was greatly relieved when I discovered that Fiore de Liberi's hometown named the main street after him. Right? Because it indicates actually he did definitely know his shit. Because you, de- you don't name the main street of your hometown after, you know, some complete loser of a crappy martial arts instructor. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, um, and, you know, Fabris was fencing master to the King of Denmark. The King of Denmark could afford a good fencing master. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but so, again, you're right. This one is one of those sort of, this is a secret of art that we have never let out. 
Okay. And now here so it is. I, I, I'm, I'm always, yeah, I'm always very suspicious of those things because there's there's been, I mean, since the 80s, there have been all sorts of supposedly super traditional martial arts coming out of the woodwork, which turned out to be made up by people in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> well, let me let me at least go this far. Um, if by chance they're making this up that this is the fighting style of the ancient Incas, mm-hmm. okay, it's still a damn good style. I've well, fought with it. It's a solid system. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there's 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 lots of different reasons to train a martial art. One of which is it comes from a particular time and place of which, so you have a kind of historical cultural interest. Another right. is it actually really works in the context it's designed for. Yep. Right? And those two things, you can have a martial art that isn't very good, but is historical and culturally like documentable. And you can have one that's that's really, really good that has, has actually been made up last week. Mm. Right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> so they're, they're totally, or they're, they're not totally unrelated. I mean, if something has a solid background, there's reason, there's good reason to suppose that it survived for a reason. Right. Um, right. But, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, um, I, I'm happy to judge the martial quality of the style by seeing it, but it takes quite a lot of digging for me to be happy with the claimed, um, pedigree for a particular Yeah, style. exactly. Yeah, abs- like, absolutely. Like, like, I mean, I've, I've trained in a country style where I was blithely told that this particular thing dated back 3,000 years. And I'm like, did it, did it fuck? <laughs> I'm sorry. That is just absolute most arrant horseshit. Right. <laughs> there is, uh, there's, and I'll be honest, I didn't even go, I didn't go searching for this, but there is a genealogy of it in here. So he's got okay. names that I could actually... Go Reese. I haven't done it yet, but uh, he's got names that I could actually go through and go. Yep. Yeah, no. Okay. Here's actual reference to this person. That, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I, I, from a certain perspective, like some hundreds of thousands of years ago, some humanoid person picked up a stick and belted somebody over the head with it, and yeah. the idea caught on, and we're all doing kind of descendant <laughs> styles from that original <laughs> style. <laughs> Right, and, and so and so, you know, to that extent, everything is historical. But but there's a there's it's 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 tricky to to be like really confident about what you can say. Okay, this we have a documented instance of this style being used in this place at this time. Right, um, exactly. Well, I mean, Fiori is Fiori is a good example. Like we can date the manuscripts quite precisely, and the claims made in the manuscript about, for example, Galeazzo's fight with Busico. That is a documented event. In, it's been documented by other people, and it, it's there's no reason to believe that that didn't happen, and there's no reason to suppose that Fiore claimed a student he didn't have, and so it's likely that at least Galeazzo, when he beat Busico, did so using something he'd learned from Fiore, and that kind of, you know, that's right. And when you tie that in with you know streets named after him in Premariaco and in Udine, you have, you know, it's 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 a we can suppose actually this is from this period and it was actually practiced and it does actually work. And again, um, you know, but the, unfortunately the Mesoamerican area, uh, mm. I mean, there's so anything that was written, most of the Spanish priests burned. Uh, but, but again, but like the Incas didn't use writing. Right. They used, they used a uh, quipu. 
Yep. Like a like a bundle of, of string with knots tied in it, which was for mostly for like accounting purposes, I think. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, rather than, it's, I think it's maybe closer to an abacus than it is to a notepad. But even even the the, the Aztecs and Mayan who had a written language. The fact of the matter is, is that most of their writing was documentational insofar as daily life. They, they, I, I've never come across anything that remotely even looks like them saying, well, this is how we used the Makahuitl. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, the same is true with like cuneiform writing. Like those, those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little clay tablets with cuneiform writing on. And some of them are in these like these, these clay envelopes. Right, and almost all of them like contracts. Like, yep. Jim owes Bob three sheep. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and it, because, honestly, it wasn't until much later, until roughly the Renaissance era, maybe a little bit earlier, um, with, with manuscripts like uh, uh, one thirty-three, um, that it we, that we had gotten beyond the. Well, if you're going to be trained in sword fighting, I'm going to train you. And, you know, we don't write yeah. anything down. It just pass, pass, you know, like the Egyptians yeah. did that with the Greeks. That's why we don't have manuscripts on how they did their stuff, because they didn't write that. It wasn't they didn't necessarily have schools, per se. Now, the gladiators were like one of the first schools I'm aware of where they mm. actually trained them uh, specifically. And well, that's like early stage combat in a sense. It, it is. But, in a, but at the same token, though, I think we've got like a cut pattern. I think they found a, like a cut pattern in one of the gladiator schools. That's really? the most they found. Okay. Why? Because a lot of those guys were slaves and they probably weren't literate anyway. Why write a book for them? Just right. get them there every day working their stuff. And also books back then weren't books. They were scrolls. Exactly. And scrolls are much, much more difficult to kind of manipulate. Right. Right, right. You can throw a book in your bag and wander it about and pick it out and flick through it or whatever. But taking a scroll out and unscrolling it is much more of an event. Right. Um, yeah. So, so I guess one of the things we can we can sort of thank one of the inventions that we can thank historical thank for the existence of historical swordsmanship is the invention of the codex. Yeah. Because. It just it just makes it much easier to write a a description of things. Um, yeah. Huh. Okay. All right. So, speaking of books, I have heard that it's not impossible that you may or may have not written the book once or twice. <laughs> is this true? Tell this me, is God, true. Is this true? This is true. Uh, I did write a book. Uh, well, we were talking a little earlier about the relationship between fencing and uh, stage combat. There is a book yeah. on that that is uh, should be in the description below a link to it. That is the uh, stage combat sword play from Shakespeare to present. And then my okay. most recent book is Combat Theory. Okay. And there will definitely be definitely be links to your books in the show notes so people can go buy them hint hint <laughs> thank you thank You're very welcome, yeah sir. i'm excited about the second one I'm, i i mean the first one is my dissertation retooled into yeah. into more of a informational book form but the combat theory is like that's that's stuff i've been working on for over 10 years and okay so 20, what, is it, you know? what is it about Combat theory, it's, I, I, I'm probably going to be the most, the worst uh, advertisement for my own book, but combat theory is nothing you guys don't really already know. It's just a 
a way to present it to you that makes it so much easier and quicker to pick up, right? Okay. We go through years of training doing drills in classes, and we pick up the concepts of combat theory along the way, but we don't know we've got it, if that makes sense. Consciously. I think that, de- that depends how you're taught. I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I have a theory of fencing that I teach to my students. Right. It, it differs from style to style. Um, I, even, I even wrote about fencing theory in one of my books, The Theory and Practice of Historical Martial Arts. Correct. Correct. Now... So, so what, what, is, what is your book? Okay, can you give us an example of um, some like, concept or, or bit of the theory that actually okay. helps people? So the basic concept this? of this is that it's all, this, it, it's all the same shit, really, is, is, is what we tend to say. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not all the same. This is your unique special shit that everyone should go and buy. <laughs> Come on, John. Hey, well, the, 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 the point being is like, this is the combat theory that works for ex- absolutely all melee combat. Period. Oh, okay, so so hang on. It's not for the duel. It's for the melee. It's for it's for it's for melee. Well, I mean, it, any okay. kind of close any kind of close quarters combat with regard to. I mean, I even call. I would even consider like pike close quarters. Anything sure. that is not ranged. So bows and guns and things like that. Right. Yeah. So anything that we have in hand and we're going at or unarmed, all this works for this because it breaks down what is involved in an attack. What is involved in, and, and how do you how do you break that attack down? What's involved in a defense? What what are and they usually fall they fall into groups of three on a constant basis, right? In an attack, you only have the energy, the direction you know the energy direction that, that energy is going into, the base it came from, and the technique that's being used. That that's that's what comprises an attack, and you've got right. to sort of find a way to disassemble that sort of triangle, as it were. And in the defense, the first thing you need to do is there's three things you have to do. You've got to cover the line of attack. You have to control the weapon and you have to control their time. If you want to okay. actively okay. not die. So, so, so let, let's just dig into that a bit so everyone can be completely clear about what it, uh, how you're using these terms. Okay, so cover the line. What do you mean by cover the line? Covering the line of attack, which it means I'm closing off that line. Uh, wherever you're coming in to attack me, that's your line. I'm closing off that line so it can't hit. So, so you're putting something in the way of the attack. Or I am... It's, it's this, Getting out of the way. Yep. Yeah. This is the second part of the, of the defense. Is There's only three ways you can do that. You can either oppose it, yeah. redirect it, yeah. or range from it. Yeah, okay. Yep. So that's covering the line, covering or removing the line. It's the same kind of concept, right? It's just, it's not, it's not open to them anymore. Yeah. I want to control the weapon. Now, that doesn't mean that I have to grab hold of it with a vice grip. It just means I want to keep either blade contact if we're doing that or hand contact on it to, so I know where it is. I don't or if you, whack it, if you beat it away and it's moving away from you, it is technically yeah. under your control because you Yes, it if it's so yeah. far out that it's not a, a danger anymore. Like yeah. when I range, I don't keep, try to keep hold of that. Because I'm out of the way and it's not a danger to me anymore. So controlling the weapon uh, uh, under your control. Um, And then uh, controlling their time is uh, if you attack me and I oppose you, well, that was your move. This is my move. Now it's your move again. Sort of like a chess game. Yeah. I I don't like that. You know, it's it's a terrible (laughs) way to fight. (laughs) 
It is. It's, it's used on stage a lot, but it's not a very yeah, good way Well, we have to. It's it's the safest yeah. way on stage, you know. But so. if, if you attack me and I cover that line and strike you at the same time, your turn, your time now is going to be spent reacting to what I just did to you. And that's how you control the time of your opponent. Okay. All right. I, I many moons ago, I think it's in my book, Medieval Longsword, I summarized, like, how sword fighting works like this. You tell me what you think of it. Does it fit okay. with your with your model? Okay. Um, whatever you hit with, let's call that the sword. Whatever you can defend with, could be a shield, could be a dip, could be like the first half of your blade, whatever. Let's call that the shield. Okay. So, put your shield in the way of their sword. Hit them with their raw sword. If their shield is in the way, go around. Do it all in the shortest possible time. Yeah. Absolutely. Because okay. if their shield is in the way, it is in what is called a closed line at right. that point. Yeah, so you have to go yeah. around it. Yep. Uh, and there are, there are a million different ways to do all of that. But fundamentally, if you get hit, you fail to put your shield in the way of their sword. And if Correct. you fail to hit them, it's because their shield is in the way. Or yep. they're not there. Um, okay. Okay. And I, so, I, I discuss uh, uh, biomechanics in here, so skeletal alignment. Okay. Uh, all those important things that we that a lot of people don't even think about when they're when they're learning to fight, and it's like, oh, you have no idea. Okay. All of my students know that I am an absolute nut for mechanics. In fact, listeners who may be interested in mechanics should definitely check out the episode with Katie Bowman, who is a biomechanist. Oh, nice. That's her Good. actual job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, she's she's fascinating. It's hysterical. She's like a Put it this way, I had to um, approach her through her assistant to ask her onto my, because you, you cannot contact Katie directly wow. unless you're like married to her or one of her children. I think they're allowed. <laughs> but she's, she's, she's sufficiently sort of like high up the ranks that you, you can't just like email her or tweet her or something. You have, you have to go through channels, right? Um, Invite her on the show because of, you know, I'm a massive biomechanics fan. Right, and she was, her response was absolutely hysterical because I asked her to the show, and it's about swords. Um, she was just because her son is mad about swords, and so she sent me a picture of her holding a sword and her son wandering down the um, the Hadrian's Wall path in <laughs> Scotland with a sword on his back and everything. It's just like, okay, okay, we're definitely we're definitely in the right neck of the woods here. But yeah, I mean, so she has some, she she isn't thinking about like how to hit people with biomechanics she's thinking more about how to stay healthy for a long time exactly they're fundamentally related things you have to use your skeleton the way it's supposed to be used yeah to get the best out of it yeah absolutely um let let the record show that I can just contact you directly because, you know, you and I are old friends. But of course, if Absolutely. any of the listeners want to contact John, they have to go through your agent's agent's agent. They will have to go through somebody. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll put somebody to put Well, they can just send an email to me and I'll pass it on. That's fair. But yeah, it's... Uh, it, 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 I, I worked at, uh, when we were doing that Shenandoah project with Brad Waller and, and Bob... Uh, um, uh, Oh, why did Bob's name just escape? We, uh, Which Bob? Bob Sharon? Yes, Bob Sharon. Bob Anderson? Bob Sharon. Bob Sharon, okay. Uh, Bob Sharon and uh, 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 the Martinez's and Jared, uh, when we were doing that project, 
that's when I started this sort of concept, working with all of them. And Dwight was there every year as well with us, right? Um, just just for people who don't know, who is Dwight? Oh, Dwight McLemore, Colonel Dwight McLemore. Yeah. He's my master uh, uh, and uh, from the School of Two Swords, and he passed that on to Steve Huff and myself. I, I'm a, I'm, I met him at some of the ISMAC events, I think. Um, I, I seem to remember having Bowie classes and Tomahawk throwing classes. With yes. Him. Yep. Yeah, and uh, and he was he was a wonderful man, and it was he was brilliant. So a lot of this stuff uh, that I get out of here um, really kind of comes from working with all those people and putting it all together uh, and tying it in. From my perspective, it's nothing you're not going to get in 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 a, in a classroom. It just they might get it quicker. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't have to justify putting it in a book to simplify things. <laughs> I mean, that's that's pretty much what I do. Yeah. Um, okay. Yep. You mentioned something called the Shenandoah Project. I'm not familiar with that. What is the Shenandoah? Project? That was a project that Brad Waller. I don't know if you remember Brad. I know Brad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brad Waller put together years ago, and he brought down a bunch of master instructors, and they relegated it to very very small number of students high level students basically it was a chance for us masters to get together and work with each other decide what we wanted to teach there and and then we could kind of riff off each other hmm. you know and sometimes we could even bring things that we were working on we hadn't quite yet decided how yeah. the best way to teach it in a class and then we could all do it and then we could get notes from each other going well i would you know, do this or that, or this works this way or something. So it was, a, it was an amazing experience. And that was about, it was supposed to be a 10 year process, but I think it lasted about five, maybe, okay. maybe four. Hmm. Interesting. Um, okay. so that, but it's not, it's not current. Am I right? No, 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 no. That, no that's okay. been over for a number of years. Okay. All right. Now there are a couple of questions that I ask most of my guests. Um, the first is what is the best idea you haven't acted on? I have to say I haven't acted on it yet. Uh, that's that's the best answer. But tell me, tell me what it is. Um, well, I had started a project where because I'm an EMT as well, and uh, okay. I started a project with some local people here who were motion capture specialists, and they had their own huge studio. And how, we how, e EMT is like emergency services. Medical technician, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So ambulance driving and and yep CPR and stuff like that. I don't work in, a, in that business, but I am certified. So Okay. Um, All right. So I'm just struggling to, to get a connection between the two things, EMT and – but I'm sure it will come. I should stop interrupting. <laughs> Carry on. Well, see, the, the, we, I went to them, and we were going to create virtual reality testing for EMTs, state Ooh, testing. Ooh, interesting. So where you didn't – especially during COVID, you didn't have to go to a big room full of people and test – you could do it yourself with a virtual reality thing and it still feels like you're doing the right stuff, all that kind of stuff. Well, they they farted around forever and wasted their time and we finally reached a point where we're like, it's too late, that window's closed now. Gee, sorry. And I went, I wasted three years, you know, two, three years, uh, you know, doing that kind of thing. Well, my girlfriend then said, could your knife training, because I do some knife classes online, Mm -hmm. with some of my higher level students that have moved away since, you know, so on and so forth. Um, she says, could your training, you and, and JAG's training, uh, could you do that in that virtual reality thing? And I went, that, uh, that'd be cool to try and see if it's feasible. 
But that would mean me working with these idiots again that I don't particularly want to work with. Okay. Because, so that's what I'm saying. I haven't done it yet because I haven't found a new batch of motion okay. capture people to work with. So, so you're thinking of using motion capture to enhance online teaching? Yes. How? Well, the way that it would be done is they would motion capture me doing the, the, the movement, the drills, doing mm -hmm. all these movements, right? Yeah. You then would put that visor on and you would be in a, a room, which we could create whatever we yeah. wanted to look like, you know, like the Matrix type thing, right? Yeah. We, you'd be in a room with me and I would be there doing that drill with you physically and you could be doing it as well. And we might even okay. get to the point where we could get to the to where um, I would actually physically stop my motion. You meet me. If it touches my area, it turns green. You're like, oh, you got it. Boom. And move on. Not sure because I'm not that fully immersed yet in that sort of uh, VR mm. world. My son so. knows more about it than I do. But <laughs> if, not if, nothing else, if nothing else, you would have what feels like a more realistic situation where I'm in a room with my instructor going at it. Yeah, it's more, more immersive. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I remember I worked with the Clang Project many moons ago where Neil Stevenson and friends were trying to put together mm -hmm. a, um, a computer game that allowed you to basically train swordsmanship. Yeah. Which is a really cool idea. And like the the single biggest technical stumbling block was um, force feedback. So like if I swing my sword at your head and you put your sword in the way, my sword is stopped against my will. Right? And like for for any kind of like these physical tactile things you want that you want the ability to generate that kind of force feedback do you see that as a possibility the, i think the best thing you can do at this particular point in time now in all honesty is um you would feel vibration when when that touched like if if if, if yeah. my virtual reality opponent swung at my head and i put my sword up and it's in the right spot I would feel the vibration as it hit, you mm. know, and vice versa. When I turn around and swing thereafter, if they block me, I feel the vibration. Okay. Um, you know, so, but again, it's, but it, it, no matter what, it won't give you that feeling of force that stops it. You won't yeah. feel that impact. You know, with EMTs, it was easy. It didn't matter that I didn't feel a hand here that I was trying to control the bleeding of. My hands are doing the same motion. That's uh, important. Okay. Right. When I'm doing compressions, it doesn't matter that I don't feel a body underneath it. My hands are doing the proper motions, and that's okay. That's, okay. The, that's the muscle memory you're going to need. Here, I need that impact. I need that feeling of that it's going to stop. So the yeah. best I feel our training can be is effectively doing drills with your instructor in the room, and mm -hmm. you're kind of going, just kind of going at it. We might get to the point where, you know... Uh, because they've got they've got gloves now, which are you're, you're very tactile. You don't mm -hmm. need the little controllers anymore, things like that. You've got gloves now that you can do this kind of stuff with. So I might be able to put my hand up to stop something like that and feel the glove vibrate because I because I caught it in time. You know. Okay. Yeah, it's it's 
it's tricky. I mean, it's it's always going to be easier just to do it in person. Oh yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, it's, there's not always an option. And yep. and finding ways of teaching over the internet has been one of the struggles of the last couple of years. Yes, it has absolutely. But and that's the thing. I, I would like to make it more possible, but until we get some kind of almost like a, a holodeck from Star Trek or something right. where they're physically able to make them real, I we can't possibly do it because we just don't get that impact. We don't get that yeah. uh, that tactile response. Yeah, super hard. Okay. Um, I'm just curious. So why did you do all the training to be an EMT without working as one. Because I used to do workshops all over the world so much. It just made sense to me. What, so that if somebody had a had an event in your workshop, you could deal with it? Yep. It's all right. Okay. Okay, right. I mean, I have, I have a... Yeah, you know, first aid qualification, but it's not quite the same same sort of level as EMT. I was working at a college where I could get it for free. Ah, okay. Yep. So right. I took all the classes and and and, and what well, uh, you would, yeah, and everything, and uh, and got the license. I think I only had to pay for the actual testing. That's it. Okay, that's yep. super cool. Yep. So, oh wow. Yeah. So every couple of years, it's like three hundred bucks to get recertified, and that's all. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Handy. And so if something does happen in a seminar or if you're just walking down the street, then you're I actually... Have, yeah, I've, 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 I've fixed... I've dealt with a lot of accidents on the highway. I've dealt with people tripping in front of a grocery store. By the same token, though, I've dealt with split heads from a pummel bash in a workshop. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, I've dealt with all sorts of stuff in a workshop, you know, and that's... So, you know, a friend of mine was playing... Uh, sort of county level rugby in Ireland uh, he's Scottish and he, he, his team went over to Ireland for this event and he got his head split open on the field and as he's coming off the field with blood pouring out of his head he obviously needs stitches and uh, this guy says oh I can fix that for you and so he says okay and he goes over and he sits on the, the you know chap has one of these I guess you call them the station wagon over there and he kind of puts yeah, the yeah, yeah. thing down and he sits on the back of it and this chap does a very neat job of stitching up his head Okay, great. Very handy to have someone with that kind of skills right next to a rugby match. Yeah. Um, my friend found out afterwards that he wasn't a doctor or an EMT. He wasn't even a veterinary surgeon. He was a saddler. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. honestly, honestly, he did a really good job. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, my last question. Somebody gives you a million dollars, pounds, whatever. It's imaginary money. Have as much as you want to spend improving historical martial arts or related fields worldwide. How would you spend the money? From my perspective, uh, what we really desperately need is uh, is accessibility. You know, we need... Okay more workshops that are funded that can afford the space, the, the, ven the venue, the, the, um, uh, the, the instructors and, and pay these instructors what they're worth to come in too. You know, it's, it's, uh, sure. it's, it gets old when, when we get asked to come in on our own dime and, and not be paid and, but do it for the fun. 
or the love. Who, who, who asks you to do that? There, there, there are some. There's a couple. Of, there's one out there that, that I do because it's a, it's a, it's always a, a it's a fundraiser for children. And I'm fine. Oh, with fine. That. Yeah. Okay. That's, yep. that's different. Yep. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Uh, but, uh, but other ones, there's some. There's still some in the states that do that kind of stuff. So, it, it I, I think it's it's important that the students themselves see the worth of the people they're coming for. Yeah. But I'd also. I know that whole concept of, well, if it's free, nobody nobody feels it's worth anything. Yeah, but I'd like to try to break that concept and, and at least keep it very low, a cost for the student, very low. But also it, it can be dependent on circumstance. So, you know, if I was invited to go and teach a seminar for a bunch of London city financiers, right, then I would charge accordingly. And if I'm going to teach a bunch of um i don't know students in i don't know pick a country with a with a low cost of living and low income right then what's what's a significant uh, a sufficiently significant fee for one group so that they'll actually understand that they're investing something in this and so they're invested in it Right, right. It's totally different. So, you know, I've, I've taught seminars where um, the amount of money that was going to be raised was so ridiculously low because, you know, because of these various factors that see, my view is I either get paid properly or I teach for free. And I don't like to do stuff particularly in the middle. Right. So, right. so it was like, well, okay, um, make, a, make a significant to you contribution to this particular charity. And I'll teach for free, right? And that's fair. They're paying something, but what they're yep. paying is is like proportional to their you know, their current sort of financial status, right? And and like the equivalent of I don't know, maybe taking their girlfriend out to dinner, or their boyfriend out to dinner. Or mm-hmm. all of their girlfriends. No, not all of their girlfriends. That would be very expensive. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like, like, like it's the sort of expense that it, it, it comes out of the fund budget, not out of the feeding the children budget. Right, right, right. Right? Right. Um, and that kind of, it, it cuts through the thing. But, you know, I have had <laughs> these, uh, some people don't understand that this is my actual job. And uh, many moons ago, I was invited to teach at a multi-instructor event um, and I was like, yeah, I'd be delighted to. And my usual thing for that situation is you need to pay my expenses, which is at that point is flights from where I was to where I needed to go, which was going to be about $350. Okay. By modern standards, maybe 400, something like that. And I got this like outraged email back, like, who the hell do you think you are that we would screw our budget for this event just to have you over? It's like, seriously, some people are weird about money. <laughs> it's like, well, okay. So obviously I'm not going because I don't see any particular reason why I should pay to go to an event to teach. No. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. And to be honest, um, even if even if things changed, your initial attitude is enough for me to not want to be there anyway now. Right, exactly. You know? Exactly. Well, can compare that to um, the guys in, in New Zealand who, who, knowing full well that flights to New Zealand are very expensive and it takes a very, very long time to get there and whatever, 
They asked, what would it take for you to come and teach at our event? Right? So I said, well, this sort of event, you need to cover my expenses. And I'll, you know, my time is free. They cover the expenses. And they're like, oh, really? Oh, oh, okay. We can do that. And then, <laughs> and then they helped sort of organize like paid seminars either side of the event so that I could actually yeah. get, get some money for the time that I was spending away from home and whatnot. But yeah, like, there's, there's this strange sense of entitlement that some, some groups seem to seem to yeah like. exactly and like, I think that that's something I'd like to I'd like to break I'd like people to understand yeah. what what uh, what it took to get where we are and that it's worth uh, some money but at the same token I want these events that I would fund with this to be readily accessible to so many more people so right. again that concept of well if you say it's free then no one's going to come because they're going to think it's shite right. But wow. that's that. That's where that charitable donation thing comes in, right? Like, so I would, pro- I'd say probably what I would do is I'd be like, okay, it's like seventy five dollars to get into the event and and be a participant for the weekend, but your room and 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 meals here are covered. Wow, wow. that would be, yeah, that would that would do it because then it, then it's still a cost to them. It's still a cost and it means something to them. Yeah, and uh, but it's now affordable. Yeah. All they got to do is get their butt there and yeah. then they're set. And, and I think that would that'd probably be probably one of the best ways to do it. It doesn't demean the instructors by saying it's a free event. Yeah, but you could also have it as sort of like scholarships, like, okay, we're, we're having this event and for most people it's, I don't know, $250 for the weekend plus whatever it costs them to stay there and whatnot, which is kind of standard, I think, for most events these days. Yeah. And um, But we have like 20 funded places which can be applied for. Right, right. Right. And which, which can also include travel costs because for yep. some people, the cost of getting from... Just the flight know, alone is too much, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, yeah. To get from like Nevada to Detroit, that's that's a long way. Yep. Um, yeah. I think that'd be and, good. I think I think that'd be a good add-on as well is like... As, you know, one, one thing that... I forget which of my guests suggested this. Ah, I think it may have been Dory Coblins. Um, I can look it up and put a note in the show notes. Uh, who suggested having creches at events? Childcare. So parents nice. of young yeah. children can go to the event with their children, park their children somewhere safe and happy, go have a good time doing grown-up sword stuff with their friends, and their children are there in you know good form at the end of the day. Yeah, nice. Yeah, that that would be a nice sort of combination of the things. So maybe some of the money could go into like crashes, like subsidized travel for less well-off students. Yeah. Okay. I think so that's I it the, because <clears throat> it's all about right now. It's all about accessibility. Who yeah. can get to these events? You know, and these events only thrive when they have students at it. Yeah. You know, and and so. and. You don't want it to be always the students who happen to be well off who can yeah. make it. Yep. Um, it's it's an unfair. Yeah, it's just unfair. Um, hmm. Well, if I had the money, I'd definitely consider giving it to you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Excellent. When you get it, give me a call. <laughs> yes. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. Thank you very much for joining me today, John. It's been Thank great you to so you much again. for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks as always to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Asante Lawler, who is an inventor, corrective exercise specialist and martial artist who is currently working on an edge alignment device to help people learn to cut with swords better. You don't want to miss that, so subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have a minute, do leave a review. It really helps. And of course, tell your friends that they should jolly well be tuning in to The Sword Guy every week like you do. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Music